Welcome to the Eric Erickson Show podcast, Hour 3. Hello, America. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-973-7425. You can also get online. You can follow me on social media, whether uh, if you text Eric to 33777, E-R-I-C-K, to 33777, you can get the uh, links to... Um, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all that sort of stuff, and the daily email. I got to finally tell you about my um, past weekend. Mentioned to you what I was going to do, uh, but uh, the the conversation shaped out completely different. For those those of you who don't know, uh, I was gone Friday to Monday. Well, I I did the show on Friday and then left uh, right after, Um, and... So what I did was go out west and was able to hang out with the really rich people who give a lot of money to Republicans. And those rich Republican donors had questions. Now, let me set the stage for you. I started Red State in 2005, and I really didn't start it. 2004, 2004, I really didn't start it. Um, three friends of mine, uh, Mike Krampaski, Ben Dominich, and Josh Trevino, started Red State. They brought me on at the very beginning. I was a lawyer uh, who did election law. and was a board lawyer in middle Georgia who wrote about politics, and they put me in charge of the site pretty quickly. And then uh, we relaunched it from redstate.org to redstate.com, and and I started my gathering conference as part of Red State. Uh, We'll do a gathering this year in Atlanta. And started getting this high-profile readership. The Bush White House, for example, would read me. They they read Red State. Particularly, they focused on me. At one point, one of the cool things in my life was I got to go up to Washington go to the Bush White House, meet Tony Snow, who had always, not just a hero, he had actually helped me in law school, uh, and I never met him in person, and he was always my favorite guest host for Rush. Um, and it, it was kind of a surreal moment. Uh, when we had our, our second child in particular, by then, I I was someone that people in Washington paid attention to, and I mean, we got a letter from the president, Senator DeMint, a baby gift from Fred Thompson, who had run for president. It, it was just a surreal, weird. It still is very surreal to me. I mean, y'all, it, it's just it's it's kind of bizarre to be in a room with these these people who they've got their own planes and and they own hotels and they own golf courses and they own these mansions. And it's just kind of wild. Um, and I try very hard, even when I don't agree with someone, to at least, one, understand, and two, be able to offer them some useful, constructive advice. I, I just have always kind of thought, I let me just give people my frank advice, whether they like it or not. I mean, it, it's, it's free. And I've gotten to this point now where I know who my readership is of my daily email. It's kind of a who's who. And they pay attention. They, they listen to this radio program. Uh, I've always kind of taken the view that my job should not be the widest read or the most listened to, but have the most influential people listening. And I can maybe persuade them of things uh, and persuade them I'm right, persuade them of a direction to go in. And it, it's always kind of worked out that way. And now I've gotten invited 
to speak to these billionaires and these millionaires. And I got to tell you guys, first of all, it's just a different life. I don't really, I, I can't relate. And I am, I'm, I realize I have a higher income than a lot of people who listen. And I am not in that income. I am not in that league. Uh, I do not own Fortune 500 companies. I do not have a private plane. Uh, I do not have multiple houses around the country. I, I'm actually friends with a billionaire. And dude owns like like part of Hawaii and a massive amount of land out west. And it's just it's it's completely different existence from what you and I think. Uh, I just I, I would love to be able to I, I've, there's a I'm friends with a group called Priority Jet, uh, several guys who work there. They, they're out of Atlanta. And I would love to be able to travel uh, by private plane in large part because I actually do get yelled at in the airport. I've been yelled at multiple times peeing in the airport. It's just I'm that guy who's got to go into the stall, not because I got the shy bladder, but because I don't want to get yelled at by people while I'm peeing. But these people, I mean, they, they've got, got the Gulf Streams and their, their um, global expresses or whatever. And it's just, I mean, it, it is a different world. But they're also very invested in the moment. They're very invested in politics, and they're very intrigued by the shaping field. They want to win. And many of these people are surrounded with other people who guide them in their spending. And that's one of the more interesting things is is they have other people who help them do their political spending. And some of them feel really burned. I was kind of frank. So I went into this, it went into this room. I'm allowed to give you the generalities. I can't really tell you who was there or the specific said, other than I got approval to talk about a couple of quotes. Um, I don't even know who else they met with. It wasn't just me. I, I saw one notable figure in the hotel. I assume he was meeting with them as well. Uh, and it, it just they, they wanted to meet with different people to get an understanding of the lay of the land, to ask questions. What came up with me is a lot of these people have political money men. That, which means they've hired Republican consultants to help them in their spending, who to give to, how to give, what to do. And when it was just me in the room with the donors, some of them felt very burned by the people on their payroll. And I told them they had every reason to be because they were spending money oftentimes on super PACs that ran ads. And I don't know if you know this or not, but when a candidate runs an ad on television, you have to give them the cheapest rate. So, for example, if you got a bunch of candidates and, and they're spending money and, and running ads and stuff, it um, it just – it's – they – the candidate gets the cheapest rate and the super PAC gets the most expensive rate. That's why, for example, my flagship station, WSB Radio – and its accompanying TV station, WSB-TV in Atlanta, did very well during the runoff for the Raphael Warnock-Kershaw Walker race because so many super PACs were spending money, you can charge them through the nose, charge them your, your, your high rate. When the candidates spend money, you got to charge the cheap rate. So when you got a bunch of candidates running for office and the candidates are spending money, TV and radio stations actually don't make a lot of money. they got to charge them the cheapest rate possible. It's the super PACs that are glorious for TV and radio stations. And I was trying to explain to these, these guys, they're very smart businessmen and women, that you, when you run an ad campaign for a candidate, you not only your commit your your consultant has taken a commission off the top, they then the TV station charges them a high gross rate. So then they take more money off the top as a as the placement commission. 
They probably are getting kickbacks from the film studio they use to produce your ads. Your consultants are making money. You're going broke funding these candidates, and the ads suck. They're not doing a, a hill of beans difference for the, for the candidate. Instead, why don't you pay for a ground game? If you want to spend your money, you do the ground game. My buddy Drew it lives out in Kansas. He has this app. I actually helped him come up with the idea for this app. It's called Campaign Sidekick. You, If you're running for office, if you're running a super PAC, you're doing a ground game, you can get Campaign Sidekick. Uh, I don't get paid for this. I'm just explaining this technology to you. There are other companies out there. I like his the best. You pull up this app, and it shows you all of the voters in the neighborhood you're in. And it shows you who the Republicans are and who the Democrats are. And you can go knock on the doors of someone, and you know I'm talking to a Republican. And you can try to convince that person to vote for your candidate. And then you can stay in touch with that voter. You can target that voter mail based on their issue. You knock on their door. They are passionate about school choice. You can log that in the file and start sending them. All your mail is on, I support school choice too. Come vote for my candidate. Build a ground game army for your preferred candidate. You like Nikki Haley? Don't run ads for Nikki Haley. You go out and find voters to vote for Nikki Haley. That is more effective use of your dollars. It also makes you more influential. You command this army of grassroots people. They don't even know it's you. Do that. They talk to me a lot about the candidates as well and their concerns. And the thing I thought was most interesting, there was a lady there, highly influential, uh, makes it in newspapers on occasion. My impression was she was going to sit out the primary season. She's really intrigued with Ron DeSantis. But she had a question almost everyone in the room had. Can he pivot? They were talking about the culture war stuff. The thing I've learned about a lot of these really rich people is they are not culture warriors. They do not care one whit about life issues. In fact, some of them think it sabotaged us. They don't care about your woke stuff. They don't care about that stuff. They care about the economy. Some of them care. It's just not their primary issue. I don't want to be, I don't, the blanketly dismissive. Some of them actually do care about it. It's just, it's not their thing. It's not what fires them up. And these people, particularly this lady, want to know, can he pivot to the economy, jobs in the economy? And she and the other people, they kind of got it that DeSantis has to make this cultural play to get Trump voters on his side. He's got to show, I am one of you. I am authentic. I can get wins where Trump hasn't on these issues to pull people to a side. They get it, but they're like, that's not going to resonate with independent voters. Can he talk about jobs in the economy? Can he pivot to the things that independent voters are going to matter or are going to care about? I think he can. I think he can. I, I, I really do think he's got a record to sell. The question really is, how long does it take him to pivot? Because voters are starting to pay attention. I have a, I have a suspicion. I have no insider knowledge on this. I Well, I, I do kind of on this part. I, I think he'll announce after the Florida legislature goes home. But beyond that, I, I don't know what DeSantis does in terms of a pivot. But my guess is that he comes out of the state legislative session. He gets massive wins to show the base of the GOP. And then he starts talking about the Florida economy. We're headed into a recessionary period. Biden's plan, if it were enacted, would crash the economy. Uh, massive tax on capital gains, massive tax on millionaires based on unearned income or, or unrealized gains, a massive tax on corporations, massive increasing taxes everywhere, massive spending increases. It would crash the economy. I think 
DeSantis has a way to pivot. What I was also intrigued by is, you know, the only spouse who came up is Karen Pence. Some of these people, they love Mike Pence and they love his wife as much as they love him. They genuinely like her. I do too, by the way. I, I, I'm, I, I like Karen Pence a ton. Uh, but they feel a real connection to the Pence's. There are a couple of very strong evangelicals in the room. Mike Pence is working very hard to woo the evangelicals. And he's, he's got Chip Saltzman, for example, who helped Mike Huckabee and, and um, Rick Santorum. And these guys, they've noticed. They really like him, and they feel like he's kind of the logical replacement for Trump. I, and speaking of Trump, I guess I should say some of these people were huge Trump donors. Some of them funded super PACs for Trump. And I expected to have some real pushback uh, on my criticism, but everybody was kind of, it's time to find someone younger, someone for the future that they view him as the past, which I was interested in. E- even the the couple who were, were kind of for Pence, I was like, I mean, you, you, Trump, Pence administration, now you're going to go with Pence instead of Trump. That, that I, 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 as much as I love Mike, and I truly do, and I, I look forward to seeing him in August at our event, um, I do think he's got to make the case why him, not, not his boss. He's trying that, and I think he's got a message to sell. And the other one was Nikki Haley, just real quick. Uh, several people in the room, two in particular, very vocal boosters of Nikki Haley. One of them, in fact, was very adamant that she's she's done everything. Everybody woos DeSantis over. She's already been a governor. She's got the foreign policy chops he doesn't have. She's been good for small government, um, really pushing people in the room. Now, these are all independent people. They're not going to woo each other. They're not going to band together. In fact, I kind of discourage them from trying to lay hands on one person. I think that would help the dis, uh, that would hurt the person. But it was really fascinating to get inside the minds of these people who they live an extraordinarily lavish lifestyles that you and I do not live. They have handlers who handle their money. They've got handlers who handle business. They got, they're got they intrigued in politics. They get seats at the table you and I will never get because we don't have their level of money. And they really, really, really want to win. They really, really, really think that the country's headed to hell in a handbasket unless the GOP wins. And they really, really, really feel like a lot of the Republican consultants are in it for their commissions. They're not in it to win it. And they want to shake things up. And that actually gives me some hope because I've kind of felt that way as well. When you make a million dollars, whether you win or lose, who cares? These guys, they've made their billions of dollars. And they are really in it for the heart and soul and the fight for the future of the country. And they're trying to find a couple of good candidates uh, to win. And they really, really, really want to win. And at least, at least they actually want the fight, which should encourage all of us. Howdy. Welcome. 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, more than happy to have you here. So here's your troubling story of the day. A credit card debt. Set an all-time high. A lot of households near the breaking point. You you keep raising interest rates, and those rates go up. This is not good. This is from CNBC. More consumers are leaning on credit cards to afford increasingly expensive necessities, such as food and rent. That helped propel total credit card debt to a record $930.6 billion with a B at the end of 2022, an 18.5% spike from a year earlier, according to the latest quarterly report from TransUnion, the average balance rose to $5,850, rather, over the same period. At this rate, households are near the breaking point, according to WalletHub. Using the Great Recession as a guide, the projected breaking point is the level of household credit card debt 
that will become unsustainable for most people. It's when people won't be able to keep up with their bills. We're inching closer and closer to that breaking point. Delinquencies are on the rise. For now, job openings still out far outnumber available workers. Credit cards are one of the most expensive ways to borrow money. Average APR annual percentage rate right now around 20% at all-time high. Look, I, I speak of a real-world experience here. My wife and I have one credit card with a lot on it. I'm working to got one left. Have one with a monthly balance I'm able to pay off every month. And this one just slowly whittling away. I'm actually thinking of using a home equity line of credit to pay it off, close it down, stop using it. Um, it's got a better interest rate, more manageable payment. Um, and it's I, I have struggled with credit card debt for a while. Uh, and I know a lot of people have a lot more credit card debt than I got. People, you get them in college oftentimes. They make it so easy for you to get it in college. I've been telling my kids, uh, do not go to college and get a credit card. Never, ever, ever get a credit card if you can help it. But you know the most absurd part of it, though, is that if you want to, if you want to get a mortgage, you gotta get you gotta get something because for your credit rating. So you gotta get a credit card or something. It's just the, the whole thing is designed to get you in debt and keep you in debt. And I, I understand why so many kids come out of college and they're all in favor of socialist ideas. They they feel pressured into into doing this stuff, and then it blows up in their face. But this is not a sustainable situation. And if mortgage rates continue to go up, it becomes harder for people to build equity in houses. It's just we're headed towards a very dangerous time economically. And you got the president of the United States with a stupid plan to raise massive taxes and more spending. That's not going to help anybody out there with anything right now. It's just a bad sign. Hello there. It is Eric Erickson. Across America, the phone number is 877-973-7425. If you want to be on the program, my buddy Ken Cuccinelli, this is kind of breaking news here. Um, Ken Cuccinelli, he was the Deputy Homeland Security Secretary for Trump. He was the Attorney General in Virginia. Um, Pretty big immigration official for Trump. He has announced that he's forming a super PAC uh, for Ron DeSantis. Every election is about the future, and the future is not Joe Biden. America's future is Ron DeSantis. DeSantis doesn't just talk, he acts. But most of all, he never backs down. Today, I'm asking you to run for president. Kind of interesting here. Ken Cuccinelli uh, is... He, uh, I mean, the man is a real conservative. Full disclosure, he's he's a good friend. He's also a very, very uh, principled, thoughtful conservative. Cuccinelli was the attorney general for Virginia, barely lost to Terry McAuliffe in 2013. Uh, frankly, I think that he should have won, but uh, the Republican Governors Association stabbed him in the back at the time. Uh, he could have, should have won. He went on, though, to work in the Trump administration and became one of the most powerful figures when it came to reigning in immigration at the border, building a border wall. He worked in the Department of Homeland Security, among other portfolios, uh, deeply conservative, committed, um, and he's suddenly starting a super PAC for Ron DeSantis which is kind of an interesting sign as well that you have such a prominent member of the Trump circle 
running a starting a super PAC to draft Ron DeSantis. It's time for fresh conservative leadership, he says. They're calling it Never Back Down Pack. And it's to draft Ron DeSantis and to do what I was suggesting to the donors out west they need to do to run a ground game. Uh, now, Trump's campaign is already trolling uh, DeSantis in this. Chris LaCivita, uh, who is a campaign strategist, who, interestingly enough, I think uh, worked on Cuccinelli's campaign, um, is beginning to mock Ron DeSantis. I don't know that it'll do any good. So let, let's delve into this. I, you got to give some level of advantage to Donald Trump because Donald Trump is a known commodity. He was the leader within the Republican Party. He was the president. He did win in 2016, beating Hillary Clinton. But in a narrow field, what's interesting is is when you go back to 2016, Donald Trump won the Republican nomination with fewer votes than anyone, including John McCain, for a Republican nomination. So the modern Republican primary system didn't start until 1976. It, it's hard to imagine, but before 1976, it really was the uh, smoke-filled room where a lot of the candidates were picked. In 76, you had expansive primaries across the nation. Reagan was able to take advantage of that, almost beat Gerald Ford, bounced back four years later and won with a crowded field against him trying to stop him. That's kind of a a historic, interesting point here is that Ronald Reagan in 1980, the moderates in the GOP rallied virtually everyone they could to run against Reagan to stop him. And the result was that Reagan actually trounced them. Uh, They split the moderates so badly, Reagan consolidated conservatives. He won, and he got George H.W. Bush as his vice presidential nominee in order to bring those moderates back into the fold and stop John Anderson from getting them. Anderson had originally begun as a Republican and decided to run as an independent to stop Reagan and lost badly. Reagan, he actually, Anderson pulled more people away from Carter than Reagan. And in 2016, Donald Trump got about 42% of the Republican vote. Uh, to put that in perspective, George uh, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush in 1988, uh, Bob Dole in 96, uh, George W. Bush in 2000, uh, Mitt Romney in 2012, they all got over 50% of the Republican primary vote cast. John McCain got 48% of the Republican vote cast in 2008 to become the GOP nominee. Donald Trump in 2016 with 17 candidates in the race got 42% of the vote and was the nominee. Had 17 people in the race. Right now we got Nikki Haley, Vivek Ramaswamy, Donald Trump. We're going to get Ron DeSantis. We're going to get Mike Pence. We're probably going to get Tim Scott. We're probably going to get Mike Pompeo. We may have one or two other people in. They'll divide up the field. DeSantis gets about a third. Trump, depending on which poll, has between a third and a half. It also depends on the state. In some of the early states, though, DeSantis comes out on top. And again, it depends on if the polling is right as well. And state polling is always kind of wonky. So when you have a high-profile guy like Cuccinelli breaking with Trump, signing on to DeSantis... Uh, when you've got all these donors that I met with, they, some of them had come from the Club for Growth thing. Some of them had met with candidates in New York. A lot of them have been Trump donors. In 2020, Donald Trump relied on these people. He got more big-dollar donors than he got small-dollar donors, and they're not funding him this time. 
He's also having a harder time raising small dollar donations. It's just going to be an interesting dynamic. You certainly got to give him an edge there, but it's an edge that could get dulled very quickly by others. And now there's this in the New York Times, the headline, Seeking Evangelical Support Again, Trump Confronts a Changed Religious Landscape. This is from Charles Homans. On a recent Sunday morning at Elmbrook Church, a non-denominational evangelical megachurch in Brookfield, Wisconsin, Jerry Wilson considered the far-off matter of his vote in 2024. It's going to be a Republican, but I don't know who. In 2016 and 2020, he voted for Donald Trump. He did accomplish a lot for Christians, for evangelicals, Mr. Wilson, 64, said, but he's got a lot of negative attributes, and they make you pause and think, you know, I'd like to see what the other candidates have to offer. White evangelical voters were central to Mr. Trump's first election, and he remains overwhelmingly popular among them. But a Monmouth University poll in late January and early February found Ron DeSantis, the Republican governor of Florida, who has not declared his candidacy for president but appears to be Trump's most formidable early rival, leading Mr. Trump by seven percentage points among self-identified evangelical Republican voters in a head-to-head contest. It was an early sign that as he makes a bid for a return to office, Mr. Trump must reckon with the base that has changed since his election in 2016 and because of it. Can we just step back for a moment and and note a little bit of irony in the situation here? Donald Trump gave evangelical Republicans the biggest win they have ever had. Donald Trump put Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett on the United States Supreme Court. A one-term president getting three Supreme Court picks is somewhat historic. To get all three of them through the Senate and to get all three of them be conservative and to have them end Roe v. Wade, something conservative evangelicals had long wanted, is a huge win. But the irony is because he gave them that win, they don't need him now. It's kind of an interesting transactional relationship. Donald Trump, by the way, everyone who knows him and and has dealt with him in politics acknowledges he is very much a transactional politician. Uh, Everybody's a transaction to him. But for evangelicals, they use Trump as well transactionally. And this is is one of those things that's always kind of made me upset, um, cynical, I guess. Follow along with me here. You don't have to be a person of faith to understand my frustration. Early on in Iowa in 2016, 2015, 2016, Donald Trump did an event. Frank Luntz moderated it. Frank Luntz asked Donald Trump, is there anything you've ever had to repent of? Now, you have to understand that within Christianity, there are kind of three requirements to be in the faith. You accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You repent of your sins and you be baptized. Repent and be baptized. That's Christ's call to the apostles. So when Donald Trump said he had never had to repent of anything, 
for a lot of evangelicals who took their faith very seriously, that was a really big red flag that he's not really one of us. And then there was the two Corinthians or the two Philippians, the two Corinthians, I think it was, the second Corinthians, things like that. Um, it kind of stood out as he doesn't really speak the language. He doesn't really understand it, but evangelicals went with him. They went with him for a variety of reasons. Part of it is they viewed the left as, as an existential war with with conservatives, uh, whether it was uh, the final gay marriage or the rise of transgenderism or, or you name it, the, the persecution of Christians. I mean, they saw Obama sue nuns for Pete's sakes. It's kind of like big red flag here. We got to find a fighter. And they found Donald Trump. But it was always very transactional. And the thing that, that just always bothered me, bother is probably the best word here, not, not upset or frustrated, but bothered. The thing that always bothered me is that it has always struck me as someone who takes his faith seriously that a lot of the evangelical leaders who surrounded Donald Trump to get their way with him, they were no more interested in Donald Trump's soul than they were interested in what second of the day it was. They, they, they wanted, they wanted policy from Donald Trump. They didn't care whether the man went to heaven or hell so long as they got from him what they wanted, these Supreme Court picks and the like. There were some who genuinely, I think, cared, but a lot of them, you listen to their conversations, it didn't matter to them that Donald Trump said he never repented as long as he put good judges on the bench. And I always think you people are putting this man's soul in jeopardy to get something from him, and if you take your faith seriously, you're going to have to believe God's going to judge you because of it. You can only stretch that so far, but it always bothered me that that these these faith leaders seemed way more interested in what they could get from Donald Trump than whether or not Donald Trump was going to heaven. And I think if you're really a person of sincere faith, you gotta you gotta worry about where he's going. Eternity's a long time. Well, the dynamic has changed. Transactionally, these people got from him what they wanted. Roe v. Wade is no more the law of the land, and now they're like, now we can we can be done with him. We can move on. And I, in that regard, I feel bad for Trump. If you're if you're a person of faith, people shouldn't be expendable to you, and yet he kind of is. They are to him. They are to him. We shouldn't deny it. They are to him. But he should not be expendable to them, and he is. And part of it is just the nuancing between whether you're a Christian and American and your faith and your politics. Pence and DeSantis kind of are the alternatives for these people. And I get it. You want someone to win. You, you think Joe Biden's done damage. If Donald Trump were to get back in the White House, he could legitimately, legally only serve four more years, where a Pence or a DeSantis could serve for eight so I understand that. I understand the level of transactionalism. It just, it, it frustrates me. It actually, as someone who takes my faith seriously, it has frustrated me for so long how transactional the relationship was and how much damage a lot of these people did to the branding of evangelicals in the country by being so committed to Trump, regardless of what he said, coming out and defending him. I remember one prominent evangelical when Donald Trump in 2016 suggested that Planned Parenthood did good things. He was on TV. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. they do some good things, not the abortion stuff, but other stuff they do good. I'm like, why are you defending Planned Parenthood because of this guy? Come on. Nobody wanted to be honest about it. Trump's going to have an advantage in 2024. But when the evangelicals are starting to say, eh, maybe we can get someone younger who could serve eight years and, and we've already gotten from him what we wanted, I kind of feel bad for Donald Trump at the same time. 
I also kind of get it. Um, the characterization I wrote about this morning, if, if you read my daily piece, talking to these donors. In fact, let me just, because it's always better the first time, let me just read you what I wrote. And, and it, it's an observation. I can't take credit for the observation. It was one of the people at the meeting who made the observation um, that uh, they, they view DeSantis as the closest they can get to Donald Trump, but with a penchant for pulling the pin on the grenade and actually throwing it instead of putting it in his mouth. Kind of a, a funny visual there that Trump pulls the pin on the grenade and sticks it in his mouth. DeSantis actually throws the grenade. I kind of get if they still think there's some sort of existential threat from the left. You want someone who hasn't lost to Joe Biden? That would be someone other than Donald Trump. And you want someone who could get eight years instead of four, and that too would be someone other than Donald Trump. So as much as he's got an advantage, he's also got those anchors weighing him down in this transactional race of people to find someone to back in 2024. I want you to back Eden Pure Thunderstorms because they got your back when it comes to dirty, noxious smells. They are odor eliminators. It's not just that they're air purifiers. They, for example, they have a, um, they, they've got a electrostatic plate so that you don't get a filter subscription. You just use the electrostatic plate and it takes care of the dust and the pollen. My gosh, I got a lot of pollen in my area right now. And they trap it all and you can wipe it out on occasion. Where they really shine though is an odor eliminator. They produce ozone and, and it wipes out bad odors. So they it wipes out litter box odors and pet odors. It really wipes out smoke. I am a living proof. It wipes out smoke odors. Got cigar smoke in my SUV and it wipes it. You can't even tell. It's fantastic. Uh, you can get three of them for less than $200 by going to EdenPureDeals.com. You can hold these in your hand. They plug into the wall or you can power them with a USB cord in a car with a car USB outlet. So if you get a rental car and someone's been smoking in it, I've done this too. Wipes out those odors. Pet odors, litter box odors, you name it. Get three of them less than $200 at EdenPureDeals.com. When you go to EdenPureDeals.com, you'll see a discount code box, and you just put in my name, Eric, E-R-I-C-K, on the front of the website. E-R-I-C-K, front of the website. You get three Eden Pure Thunderstorms. You're saving $200. You get all three of them for less than $200. You get free shipping. You can get one for upstairs, one for downstairs, one for your basement or your travel bag. I always travel with one in case a hotel room or a rental car stinks. EdenPureDeals.com. The discount code is just Eric, E-R-I-C-K, and you can get three of them for less than $200. Welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. There's a, a this is kind of bizarre. I'm actually, I'm, I'm on an email thread with some friends on this. The New Yorker's profiling Agnes Collard. She's a philosopher, homewrecker, renowned Ivy League philosophy professor. She's married a mother. She falls in love with a student. The affair leads to a divorce and then to a cohabitation with her student-turned-husband and her former spouse. And somehow uh, she's profiled as some sort of noble person for something that if she were a heterosexual male professor would be run off college campuses. It's such a grift. The, the entire double standard. Yesterday was International Women's Day, which is apparently a new thing. My kids and I were starving until sunset and my wife could stop celebrating and come cook a supper. And it just, it, the parade of these sorts of people that the media boosts a, and a, a, listen, the media rightly so, I think, vilifies Marjorie Taylor Greene for cheating repeatedly on her husband with Jim Bros. 
at her CrossFit box. And this woman is a philosophy professor at Harvard who has all of the right sensibilities for the left, wrecks her own marriage, brings her student-turned-husband in, lives with their former spouse as well. It's seedy and gross. And here's the thing. This is a, a common cultural critique of the right these days that I think has more and more relevance, is that poorer Americans, if they lived this lifestyle, could not survive. By virtue of her status, wealth, and position, she can get away with something the rest of the world can't. And to parade her around as some sort of hero for doing it should be gross to every responsible moral person. But yet the New Yorker decides that she's some cause celeb. Uh, it, the whole thing is just gross.